Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out to Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gargashites, the Amorites, and the Jezbites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, each from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the waters, because the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest, The water coming down above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabeth, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stirred firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all of Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So I thought we'd start this morning. Uh, it's not Throwback Thursday, but it's going to be Throwback Sunday. And for a lot of you, I look across this audience, this is going to be completely new to you. This is 45, I think about 45 years old. Some of you you're going to recognize it, and you're going to want to sing along. Okay, here it is. It's an old commercial for ketchup. Heinz ketchup. Think how good it's going to taste when it finally gets there. Anticipation. I get it. Sing it. Anticipation is making me wait. It's slow good. It's keeping me waiting. Rich-tasting Heinz ketchup. It's slow good. You remember that? Isn't that Carly Simon, I think? That's Carly Simon who sings that. 
song. I bring that out to you this morning because uh, we can appreciate a commercial like this, at least at one level, as hokey as some of you young people might think it is, because we've all been in situations that we anticipated. Uh, remember your junior year, how, how badly you wanted to be a senior <laughs> and you couldn't wait for your senior year and it just seems like the junior year lasts forever and then the senior year flies by. Uh, you think, I, I think of uh, young men and women as they're approaching their wedding and as the weeks tick off, you can just see the anticipation building and building and it gets tense. In fact, sometimes they argue more than normal because of the, of just, it's just the result of the anticipation. Or maybe the anticipation of that baby being born, especially if they're taking their time coming out and they're making you wait even longer than you planned. That's just the anticipation builds and builds. We can, we, we can relate to that. And in all of us as a church right now, I mean, I don't know about you, but the anticipation, I mean, being back here and looking out across that parking lot and seeing that flat land and all those big equipment and everything, it's like, ah, it's coming. You know, you just, the anticipation builds. And I I bring that up because uh, that's an important concept, I think, here in Joshua chapter three. Abraham's descendants, they have been waiting 600 years for this day. God promised this day to their forefather Abraham 600 years before. And from generation to generation, the story had been passed on, the promises had been passed on, and finally, they are here. And in fact, the, the people who are about to cross the river, some, many of them had been children when 40 years before, they could have crossed into the promised land. But their parents refused to believe the promises of God, and they had to wait another 40 years in the desert and horrible conditions, watch their parents die off before they could now come to this day. And so you know that the tension, the excitement, the anticipation has just built to a fever pitch. And and you know this for a couple of reasons. First, humanity has not changed in the centuries since this event. And, and if you put yourself in their shoes, if you think about what would I have been feeling, what were the emotions that would have been running through me, it's very similar. I mean, some of us, we would have been maybe uh, afraid, there would be a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety and worry, but also excitement, anticipation. We know it because of the human condition, but we also know it because of God's word. Uh, Chapters three to five are all one unit, and they're telling this story that is the culmination of centuries of anticipation. And what you'll notice in this story, chapters three to five, is that the author, um, it it seems at times like, it's like, why is he repeating this? Why why does he just stop in mid-thought and bring something else into the story and then several verses later come back and finish out the original thought and, and, and why does he keep bouncing back? It just doesn't, from our perspective, it doesn't make sense, but in the ancient world, especially Hebrew literature, this is the way that authors built tension. And, and they're introdu- he's introducing tension. You want to see it resolved and he doesn't resolve it right at the very next verse, he waits five, six verses, or the next chapter, and then comes back to it to fill something in that you really wanted to know much earlier when you were first reading it. And all of that is intentional, to build a sense of anticipation, 
tension for what's going on here. And, and personally, I'm okay that he does this. I mean, after all, if you're talking about a, a promise uh, uh, that God has waited 600 years to fulfill, I mean, don't you want the details? Uh, I mean, aren't you glad that, uh, you know, I mean, how unsatisfying would it have been if the author had just, you know, said, yeah, they, they broke camp, came to the Jordan River, crossed the river, and there before them was this massive city, Jericho. It was, well, let me tell you about the Battle of Jericho. That would have just been completely anticlimactic. Instead, he, he builds it up, and he builds it up. He understood the momentous nature of this occasion. So for those of you who are note takers, I know several of you like to take notes. This morning, we're going to break chapter three, and my clicker doesn't seem to be working. Uh, and I don't know if that was me that finally it worked, or you guys may have to work with me there. We're going to break it up into three sections. First, there's the careful preparations for the crossing. This is the first third of the chapter. The remaining two-thirds of the chapter really deal with the sovereign purposes of the crossing, and then we're going to look at the gospel message in the crossing. So in these first five verses, what we have is the preparation of God's people. There's physical preparations. In verse one, Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. In other words, they broke camp. They moved from Shittim to the Jordan. And, and this is an important detail for us to understand the context of what's been going on in the children of Israel. For, for many years, Shittim had been essentially the headquarters for the Israelites. This is an area that was about, if you can imagine a, a map of Israel and you see you know, the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River comes down and then there's the Dead Sea over here is the Mediterranean Sea, right? This is all the promised land. They're over here. And they're about seven miles northeast of the Dead Sea. They're in this area called the Plains of Moab. And that, that's, that's significant. You know, they're opposite of Jericho by many miles. The Plains of Moab is significant. They lived there for years and it had not been some good years. You read the book of Numbers, you see that the Israelites will, even this generation of Israelites don't learn the lesson from their fathers and they commit spiritual adultery. At one moment in time, God has to chastise them and he kills in judgment 25,000 Israelites for their spiritual adultery. They intermarry with the Moabite women. Now remember in the scriptures later, David, the psalmist, through the psalmist David, God will say, Moab is my chamber pot. Moab is my chamber pot. And young people, in other words, Moab is my toilet. That's how Moab was looked at. It was a depraved place filled with spiritual idolatry, pagan worship, false worship, and they influenced the Israelites negatively. This is the place of Balaam and Balak and the, the donkey that speaks and the angel of God. Remember, I don't know, those of you who know your Old Testament, this is that time, this is that region. And they're living here and they're struggling with apostasy. They're marrying Moabite women, which was, was a contrary to God's law. We, we get an idea of the, the serious nature of this area and this time when several centuries later, the prophet Joel giving prophecies about the Messiah and what the reign of the Messiah is going to be like. In Joel chapter three, he says, the Messiah's reign is gonna be so wonderful that out of, the, out of Jerusalem, streams of living water will actually flow east and go into the area of Shittim and restore it and make it into a, a vibrant va uh, valley 
of pleasure. So in other words, the Messiah is so powerful, he can even fix Shatim. (laughs) So that gives you an idea of what they've been experiencing for many, many years. And they break camp, they leave there, and now they come and they make camp for a few days next to the Jericho, or next to the Jordan River. They came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. Now, you wouldn't notice about me, probably, many of you, but uh, you, know, I w- you hear me talk about Jacksonville, that's what I consider home, but I actually graduated from high school in the Tampa area. I lived there for about three years, my last three years of high school, and um, I made friends, and one of my friends, who ironically is also a pastor, we went through a phase in our last couple of years of high school of bridge hopping. You know what bridge hopping is? It's where you find a perfectly good bridge to drive across and you jump off of it instead into the water below. And young people, I don't really recommend this now that I'm a parent and I have a little modicum of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, it's not really a good idea. You can get seriously hurt. Um, I will say we normally, normally check the depth, not always, but uh, we, would, we, we, were, we jumped off of every bridge we're jumping off of in Hillsborough County outside of maybe like the Sunshine Skyway because that would have been a death sentence, right? We jumped off all of them. We loved it. Had a great time. And in 1983, I go to Israel. I'm at this area where this happened, where this crossing occurs, a little north of there. And I'm there about five weeks later than the the time of this crossing, still in flood stage. And of course, I'm a young man. I have no sense. I get off the bus. I'm, I'm the youngest, bunch of college students. Maybe I was trying to prove that I belong. I don't know. I see this big bridge with this big girder section. And I said, I'm jumping off that sucker. And uh, I ran up there before anybody could stop me, tore off my t-shirt, jumped into the Jordan River. And boy, was that a mistake. That was a mistake. Because the Jordan River at flood stage is no joke. Before I knew it, I was five, 600 yards downstream. I had a hard time getting out of this river. It was moving so fast. And one of the reasons why is is what, and this is what they would have been experiencing. The Jordan River, when it's not at flood stage, it places, it hardly even qualifies as a river. It's like a little, a, a creek that you can kind of jump across with a few steps and it's shallow, no danger at all. All along the banks of the Jordan River, especially on the, the western side where the Israelites were, lining the river for miles, especially, you know, even today, or at least 40 years ago when I was there, um, there's thick, shrubs, jungle-like underbrush that would extend for hundreds of yards away from the bank. This is where the the lions and the, you know, the wild animals of the scriptures would often live. You you couldn't get through this type of, it was just thick. Well, in flood stage, this is all covered in water. This little, this, this barely larger than a creek that you can kind of hop across becomes a mile wide at places. And so you can imagine, I had a really hard time getting back to the tour bus because you couldn't get traction and you're having, you got these brushes and everything else tangling you up and the current of the water is wanting to rush you down. And you know, I literally had to pull myself back up the river. It was just stupid. It was dumb, you know? This is the Jordan River, this is what they're facing. And here they are, they're camping along this big river and it's an option. They've got their children, they've got their herds, their cattle. How are we gonna get across that? How do you get through the underbrush and this jungle-like material that is now covered in water? It's hard even without water, much less now that it's at flood stage. So you have these 
these preparations that they have to make. Logistically, they're, said, they're told, the Ark of the Covenant is going to lead you out. Stay a half mile away from the Ark. Now, there's a practical reason for this. And, and part of it is you've got almost two million people here who are about to cross the Jordan River. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but around two million is what most think. And, and, and they're spread out down the river. How do you know when to cross? Well, the distance, you've got sight lines, right? Half a mile out in front, everybody can now see. We out now know, we'll all know when it's time to go. And so they are preparing physically for this crossing. But more importantly, they prepare spiritually. Joshua says to the people, consecrate yourself for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. They've been dwelling in Moab. They had been influenced by Moab. They'd been affected negatively by their associations with Moab. They were about to enter a land that was equally as pagan as Moab, and they were going to engage in both physical and spiritual warfare, and they were not ready. They were not ready with God. And this consecration ceremony is important. It emphasized a couple of things. First, it emphasized the purification from sin, where they confessed their sinfulness and they demonstrated their desire to obey God and to live for God. But secondly, what it did is it reaffirmed their understanding of who they were and to whom they belong. I belong to God and I am his instrument for his use, for his glory. Essentially, this consecration service was them hitting the reset button, realizing we are not where we need to be spiritually, but we want to be there spiritually so that we can follow our Lord and we can be his instrument of righteousness. This was the most important of all their preparations, especially in light of what was about to face them. And, and I would suggest to you that this morning, this is maybe a reminder for us that our spiritual preparations, as, as important as our planning is, as our physical preparations are, as we do the work of God and they are needed and they, we should use the gifts and the abilities and the rational thinking and everything else that God provides us with, as important as it is to prepare and plan things well, that's the secondary importance. The primary importance is to prepare spiritually. Because God's people who are spiritually where they need to be with a mediocre plan is a thousand times better than God's people having an excellent plan but not being where they need to be spiritually. And so God's people are preparing themselves. And perhaps this morning, this is a word to us, at least to some of us, that we need to be reminded of who we are, to whom we belong that we were bought with a price. We don't own ourselves. We serve our Lord Jesus. Perhaps some of us this morning, we need to hit the spiritual reset button and confess that we've been unduly influenced by our sinful world and our sinful nature. So there's the, the careful preparation of the crossing. That's the first third of the passage. The second third of the passage from verses six to 17 is getting at the sovereign purposes of the crossing. Verse seven tells us the first of the two sovereign purposes. The Lord says to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Bluntly stated, one of the purposes of this crossing and the miraculous nature of this crossing is to answer any doubts that exist within the minds of the Israelites about the validity of Joshua as their leader. 
God is going to do this for the benefit of Joshua. But the primary reason is in the second purpose. And, and you discern this second purpose in a theme that is repeated over and over again within this chapter. I don't know if you noticed it when Ananda was reading the scripture, but there was something that appeared over and over and over again. Did anybody pick up on it? What was it? Anybody? The ark. The ark of the covenant of the Lord, or the ark of God, or just the ark. It's it's mentioned 10 times in these verses, and eight of those 10 times are in just a few verses in the very middle. This is an important thing. We got to pick up on this. Just to because for most of us, our concept of the ark comes from Indiana Jones. Uh, let's let's, let's kind of reset ourselves a little bit. And if you guys will put the ark picture up there. Um, the ark was a wooden chest. It was almost four foot long, a little more than two foot high and two foot wide. It was made out of wood, but as you can see, it was covered in gold, decorated. And the top of the ark was solid gold. And on top of that, top were two cherubims and their wings as you can notice don't flow out behind them instead they go towards one another they stretch out and they almost touch one another meeting directly in the center point of the ark that that gap in those wings according to the scriptures and to the Israelites this was symbolically understood to be where God dwelt his presence was when you think about the ark and what it meant and what it meant to the Israelites. First and foremost, it was a physical reminder of the covenant of God and the character of God. When they looked at this ark, they were reminded of God's unchanging nature, that he was a God who was holy and a God who was just. Inside the ark are the 10 commandments, the law of God. When, when the Israelites would sin or commit a crime, and they were judged by Moses or the judges. It happened outside the tent of the tabernacle where inside the ark of God was and the holy of holies. And they were judged according to that law contained in that ark. They, they understood that to touch the ark of the covenant was instantaneous death. You were killed immediately. And even later on in the centuries ahead, there's a story where King David is bringing the ark of the covenant back to the temple or to the tabernacle. And it's on this, this, this cart, you know, like a, a wagon and it's going along being pulled by the oxen and people are cheering and they're happy to have God's presence back with them and the ark back with them and they hit a pothole. Apparently they're, well, I'll leave the public works department alone. They hit a pothole and, the, the, the thing, and it starts to fall and a guy reaches out to stop the ark from falling and he's instantaneously struck dead. And from a human perspective, even as I read that, I said, well, that seems kind of severe. I mean, he was trying to do, a, do God a solid and stop the ark from falling. But the bigger point here is that this ark symbolized the holiness of God, the justice of God, the character of God. You don't come near that and touch it at all. It talks about his justice, his holiness. It also reminded them of God's mercy. Because that gap between those wings, every year, the high priest would sacrifice a lamb and take that blood and he would pour that out in that gap, which was called the mercy seat of God. In the day of atonement, when he beseeched God 
to forgive the people of their sin. So it was this physical reminder of the character of God, the covenant of the Lord. It also represented his sovereign power and might. For 40 years, the priest had been carrying the ark, leading the people into battle or in advance of the entire camp when it was time to move from one location to another. Moses says in Numbers chapter 10, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. And this is what you see in chapter three. Here in chapter three, leading out with the ark and the corresponding miracle of the crossing of the Jordan River where God provides dry ground for them to walk on. It was all very intentional, fulfilling God's sovereign purposes. Yes, it validated Joshua, but more importantly, it was meant to encourage the Israelites that God was with them. And as we sang this morning about you are the same God, He was sending that message to them in living color, that the same God who so powerfully brought them out from Egypt in the Exodus through the leadership of Moses was now going to help them cross the Jordan River in a miracle similar to the Red Sea where they can finally enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And you know this is the purpose when you look at verse nine, Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here, and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will deliver without fail and and he will without fail drive out from among you the Canaanites and all the other ites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And so here in this passage, what an encouragement this supernatural activity and miracle must have been for them. Imagine it in your eye, the priests are carrying the ark with all the significance of what it means, the character of God, the covenant of God, the power of God, but most importantly, the presence of God. And here they are carrying this out before the people. And as they walk and they get to the very edge of that water that has now overflown its banks, instantaneously, the water heaps up into a wall 20 miles upstream so that from that point all the way down to the Dead Sea, the Israelites have a 25 mile stretch of land for 2 million people to pour over into the promised land. And as if the wall of water were not enough, God allows them to cross on concrete, (laughs) dry ground. I mean, think about it. If if that part of the miracle is just as important because if that had not occurred very quickly, that river bottom with the cattle and all the animals, it would have become like a, a bog that you couldn't navigate. So God performs this incredible miracle and they experience in living color that the same God who was with Moses at the Red Sea is the same God who was with them at the Jordan River, and it's the same God who is going to deliver the promised land into their hands. What an incredible miracle. What an incredible story. So what? So what? What does it have to do with us? Where's the gospel in this story? What's the gospel application, the gospel message for us in this story? You know, through the decades, Many have seen 
the crossing of the Jordan River and entering into the promised land to be analogous to when you and I as Christians, we die and go to heaven. We sang a, a hymn earlier this morning, a great hymn, immediately remembered all the lyrics. Many of us used to sing a, a hymn called On Jordan's Stormy Banks. Remember that song, some of you older guys? On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand and Cast a Wishful Eye. And it comes from this story. To Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will come and go with me? I am bound for the promised land. Listen to how it describes this event. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed. For I shall see my father's face and in his bosom rest. I am bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. Oh, who will go with me? I'm bound to the promised land. What great words and totally wrong for what this story is communicating. This, the song gets it wrong. Hate to say that about a great hymn, but it's wrong. The Jordan River here does not represent death. The promised land here does not represent heaven. When you think about this story and what takes place here, the promised land was just the beginning for the Israelites. Crossing this river is just the first step of faith of many steps of faith that they have to take. The promised land was not heaven at all for them. What faced them? More battle, more warfare, physical and spiritual, more temptations, more tribulation, more failure, more successes. Trusting God at the Jordan, that, that's just the first step of faith for these people who had been living in the depravity of Moab. Crossing over, I would suggest to you that crossing over from the desert of Moab into the promised land is more metaphorically analogous to our crossing over from death to life, from being God-haters to, to Christ followers. What Moses says to the Israelites is also true for us in the ultimate eternal sense. God brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. This, this event isn't about death and heaven, it's about rebirth, salvation, that first step of faith that we must also take to enter into God's family when we turn from our own righteousness and works and trust in Jesus and become followers of Christ. But that's just the first step. Now you have what's gonna take place in the promised land, the working out of that faith, the battles, the struggles, the temptations, the tribulations, and the refinement of our spirituality. If this event is being analogous to anything in our life, it is the river is salvation and the promised land is sanctification. We have to cross over. Because of God's grace and our work in our lives, if you think about it, we are a crossover people, aren't we? We have crossed over from Moab into the promised land, making our way to eternity. We have crossed over from death to life and God's work in us has begun and will conclude when we are able to claim that ultimate inheritance. We also see the gospel in this passage in the overarching truth. The main point 
that this crossing and the miraculous display of God's power is uh, uh, putting before us. A blessed outcome is assured when we obey and follow by faith, and this next phrase is important, where God first leads us. A blessed outcome is assured when we obey and follow by faith where God first leads us. As God's people, we should not miss the importance of what is put in this chapter of simply waiting on God, moving when God says move, and moving how God says to move. Because where God leads us and when he leads us, We are then called to trust him and to obey him and to expect God to then show up and bless this movement. Warren Wearsby writes that the theme of the book of Joshua is the theme of the book of Hebrews. And quoting Hebrews 6, chapter 6, verse 1, let us go on. The theme of Hebrews and Joshua, let us go on. And the only way to go on is by faith. Unbelief says, let's go back to where it's safe. But faith says, let's go forward to where God is working. I can't help but think that this is where we as a church reside right now. We're at that point where we kind of want to look back to where it's safe. It's kind of nice even this morning to be in this building because of all the nostalgia and the memories and the comfort of the familiar that we have right here. But this is not what God has in store for us. What God has in store for us is over there. And it's a new day. And we are called to move into the new day by faith, trusting God and looking to see where he leads us. And church has promised to us is that if we are spiritually consecrated, if we are watching for him and yearning and asking for his guidance, he will give it. And when we follow it, there will be success and prosperity as God defines success and prosperity. We shouldn't miss that this morning. Not at all. But there's one final application I would suggest in this passage. I come back to the instructions to the Israelites to to keep their distance from the ark. And and yes, there is a a practical reason, as we mentioned, line of sight, but you can't help but see with that, that concept of God's holiness and justice and how they had to stay away and not even get near and touch this, it, that command reinforced a deep spiritual reality for the Israelites. Their ongoing sin continued to create this chasm between them and God's presence that that could not be destroyed until God himself would come and carry not an ark, but a cross and die for his people. And because Jesus carried the cross, leading the way for us, sin and death, is conquered and we can cross over from Moab to the promised land, from death to eternal life. And that crossover opportunity is available to anyone here this morning who desires it. If in your heart you find this yearning to relate to God and to be a child of God, then I would encourage you, cross over even today. Pray right where you are in your seat, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. 
come into my life and be my Lord and my Savior. I want to follow you. We are this crossover people. And because he carried the cross and led the way, the distance requirements that are all throughout the Old Testament have been destroyed. Remember, Warren Wearsby said Joshua and Hebrews are, are corresponding books. I agree. There's so many themes that are and similar there. And I think of Hebrews chapter 4 that talks about Jesus, and it's comparing him to the high priest and the priest that were carrying those ark. And in Hebrews 4, it says, we have a greater priest who has entered once and for all into the, the throne room of heaven, the holy of holies, and he's taken that perfect blood of the shed lamb of God, and he's poured it out upon the mercy seat for his people once and for all. And in doing this, our sins are forgiven. And then he says, therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our greater Joshua, our high priest, once and for all with his cross bridged the chasm between God's people and God because of their sins. And as our savior and high priest, he has led the way May this week as his people, we experience the blessings and benefit of his sacrifice. May we draw near and not keep our distance from our heavenly father. Even at those times when we willfully sin, may we understand that the best place for us is to run back and be right next to our heavenly father. And all of that is possible because we are trusting in the one who has led the way, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your son. And may we be your people who intentionally draw close to you this week. May we be your people who look for your guidance, who hear it and see it, wait upon you. Lord Jesus, help us as your people to be consecrated to you. May you give us the grace that we need so that we can be holy even as you are holy. But Lord, as your holy instruments, this means that we are sacred vessels prepared for your use. Would you use us for your eternal ends, for your glory? And for the one who may hear my voice this morning who does not yet know our blessed Savior, may even today there be a conviction in their heart to turn from sin and embrace the grace that comes only through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray, amen.